welcome back one and all to another sizzling, exciting episode of the Partial Historians. I am Dr. Radness. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Dr. Greenfield, with a reasonable amounts of excitement. Um, <laughs> less, more dowly expressed, I think. <laughs> Only because she's... Shaking her head with vexation <laughs> at my uh, introduction. No, no, you're just more theatrical than I am. <laughs> okay, so today we're tackling a little bit of a tricky topic. It's a listener request, as a matter of fact. A listener request, you say? I do. <laughs> I, I hope the listener is listening. I know. They're really cranky if they're not. Um, <laughs> basically, we had someone way back in the day. In fact, I think it was from our first episode uh, all those years ago. <laughs> we're finally catching up to yeah. our listener request. <laughs> we're not usually that slack. It's just that this is a bit of a monster of a topic. Um, we had a listener sort of asking us about the connection in the ancient world between sexuality and health. Is that the kind of way you would phrase yeah, it? Yeah, and, and ideas relating to purity, um, sexual activity. Yes. And promiscuity. <laughs> <laughs> the way in which we think about um, sexual activity being related to issues surrounding health. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Essentially. I, essentially. I think that sums it up, yes. Yeah. And I'd like to start, if I may, Dr. G. <laughs> With a quote from A La Roche à Foucault. Stop, stop. <laughs> no, no, continue, continue, please. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> He's French, by the way. <laughs> what? It seems to me that by starting from the modern era and proceeding back through Christianity <gasps> to antiquity, one would not be able to avoid raising a question that was at the same time very simple and very general. Why is sexual conduct, why are the pleasures and activities that attach to it, an object of moral solicitude? <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> I, I think I went out of a French accent to just a vaguely European one there. But, uh, We're reaching new levels. The, the essential point remains the same. Why yes. do we have these ideas? Like, why, would our, you know, why do we connect health to our sexual behaviour? Well, particularly in, re- in regards to things like, you know, well, is like, absence good for you? And is well, yeah. bad for you? Well, that's a bit of a leap from that quote, I think, yes. because uh, the focus is on, on morality what associated with... I'm jumping around. <laughs> uh, but there is going to be a link between the two at some point, I think. Mm, yeah. um, certainly, I think if we're going to start anywhere, we need to start with conceptualizations of the body sure. in the ancient world. And... Uh, both of us being Roman historians, uh, we're left with a slight gap. So there's a, there's an interesting sort of... Uh, uh, it's more of a Greco-Roman episode today, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting there. Um, a lot of the literature related to health comes yes. to us from the Greeks. Mm. And the Romans just seem to have adopted it by and large. Yes. And um, there are some adaptations that happen. Mm. Um, but a lot of the philosophies surrounding ideas with the body uh, that underline the way that they deal with health issues in the ancient world, the Romans very much are happy to follow the Greeks. Yes. And in particular, I suppose, in ways, if, if we think about the body uh, and what's appealing in the body, the Romans mm. are definitely obviously very influenced by um, Greek statuary and and that sort of thing um, as well. Hmm. So we end up in this situation where we've got, like, like a lot of sort of general ideas about the nature of the body and and the differences between males and females. Sure. Um, Some of them to do with the hotness and coldness, relatively speaking, of the genders. Very important. It is. <laughs> it is. There is lots of arguments amongst the Greeks about who's the hotter gender, uh, literally. And I suppose, I suppose one thing which um, kind of relates this a little bit in is the idea that um, the Greeks hadn't exactly figured out 
how um, babies were conceived, I suppose. <laughs> well, I mean, and they kind of looked at the woman as being more or less an oven. <laughs> there are there are there are a lot of interesting analogies yeah. associated with the female body that come out of the Greek literature. Yeah, uh, one is that the womb is a, an upside down wine vessel, <laughs> uh, and you break drinky, the seal on drinky. that wine vessel, yeah. and all of a sudden she'll start menstruating. <laughs> I, I guess I can see where that comes from. <laughs> really? Well, really? I mean, in the regards to. Yeah, you know, I'm going to go down a disturbing path if I start talking about colorization. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a full-bodied red. Yeah, man. exactly. Um, stop me, stop me. Getting inappropriate. <laughs> um, but this relates to ideas about um, menstruation in general. This is one of my favorite topics, guys. So um, congratulations. Welcome to my inner world. <laughs> um, but uh, this idea that menstrual blood for women represents a release of some sort of excess of heat. Yeah. Uh, and so that the onset of menstruation is a really important part of female maturation, not just because it means that she's able to conceive, but it means that on some levels she's able to regulate her temperature better. <laughs> um, not that this helps her, because there are competing narratives where women are considered to be sexually voracious anyway. Um, yes, yeah, so their even... sexuality needs to be tamed. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I mean, I guess um, this also kind of relates to the the Greek ideas about, um, or, you know, sort of just ancient um, ideas, I suppose, um, about the body being need, needing to be kept in sort of balance. Mm. You know, um, that you know whether it's temperatures or whether it's you know the humors. In yes. Your body, you yes. Know, um, whatever whatever is going on with your body, it, you, you you need to keep it in balance and then you will be healthy yeah and this is part of a problem for women's bodies in particular because Mm. they menstruate and they go through this fluctuating cycle essentially they can never maintain a good balance of the humans they're always consistently in flux Uh, Aristotle for instance uh, sees menstruation as proof that women are hotter than men um, because of their their (laughs) menstrual flow they had so much heat and so much to lose that the body just started to eliminate fluids. Sounds good to me. I'll, mm. I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, mm. men had an excess of semen, which was why they're hairier than women. Oh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, if someone who's had laser hair removal. <laughs> <laughs> How much semen do you have? Yeah. <laughs> These are the questions. That's personal, Dr. G. How dare you ask me? <laughs> Well, there was also this sense in which um, women were believed to carry seed to a certain extent, sure. as well as men. Yes. Um, but the Greeks believed that the women didn't excrete that seed. Yeah, and, and it's, I suppose it's also, you know, regardless of how, if they see women as like a vessel or if they have something to bring to the table, it is kind of the man's fluids that are seen to sort of give the life so to speak, yeah. right? Well, this yeah. is where we get sort of competing yeah. ideas about the bodies as well because the predominant narrative that seems to have come across into sort of the medieval and renaissance world sure. is the idea that the man sort of adds everything yes. and the woman yeah. is just like, uh, the field to be ploughed. Yeah. Delightful terminology. <laughs> um, and, and so she really is bringing nothing to the table except the body that surrounds the child. Yeah, and, you know, carries it and gives birth to it. And, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Largely, unimportant. Largely irrelevant to the Greek mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you man- think that that is actually, though, I mean, sorry. No, I'm a bit of a tangent here. I wonder how much that has to do with sort of reassuring the Greek, well, you know, reassuring their, themselves and their own minds about, you know, the power 
of life. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> like, the fact that women have it, kind of intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly reinforces a very particular type of masculine outlook. Yeah. Where it's pretty clear that they've got almost no control over the whole child thing. Exactly, yeah. And how do you rest that back when you're feeling... Like... And the fact that the woman is the one that actually gives birth. I mean, you know, mm. don't you think they're a little bit intimidated by that? Maybe this is why these theories are so convenient. <laughs> I don't know. Really, really, we need a man here. <laughs> men, do you feel oh, well, intimidated by women giving birth? I would hope that men birth? these days don't <laughs> You know, think back to your ancient Greek brothers. Exactly, channel them. Mm. <laughs> um, certainly, there's a there's a, a sense in which um, the narrative around bodies, from a Greek perspective and a Roman perspective, as a consequence, is one which writes power out from women and writes power into men. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who knows anything about Greek civilization, just to be very brief and to be very general. Um, Respectable women were married off at a really young age, younger than Roman women were. Um, And they were essentially kept fairly hidden away from the public world. Mm. Um, Only their their slaves, other women and their their menfolk... (laughs) would see them really in their home and, and not even not even necessarily you know for the men all that frequently um but yeah, yeah they did they didn't they weren't really encouraged to go outside you know it's kind of a way of keeping them respectable i guess yeah and there's a whole sort of social practice around homosexuality in the greek world which yes. sort of serves the place of pleasure in the way that sexuality with women uh in the Greek mind represents functionality and And, procreation. And I suppose that's why, if we come back to the sort of um, connection between, I suppose, the sort of morality and sexuality and all that kind of stuff. Um, And this is the thing I think that people miss about the ancient world. They're very much concerned with procreation, you know. Mm. So I don't think... I think it's hard to... um, I, I don't think they'd quite see chastity the way Christians would later come to see it um, and even Christians themselves like you know I'm j- jumping way ahead but there's debate amongst them as well because obviously you know you have to procreate otherwise you will die out and you know a lot of their you know their religion and all that kind of stuff it's all to do with fertility because you know the ancient world it is dicier than ours they don't have the methods of birth control that we have and they don't have um, the access to uh, medical facilities like we have so procreation mm. is something that procreation is dangerous yeah, yeah it's dangerous yeah, and therefore you kind of want to encourage it more than <laughs> just encourage it <laughs> um, and yeah and sex is all yeah is really about producing it yeah 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 I mean obviously um, I mean it's this sort of fraught space where you need to do it yes. and it's highly risky yes so how do you end up constructing ways of thinking about it that sort of get people over the risk yes um exactly. you just write women out of the narrative because um, <laughs> being the bearer of so much risk it doesn't really so we get a lot of ideas about um the sense in which should one m- maintain their virginity or lose their virginity what's better for your health sure um and the arguments again go both ways <laughs> surprising <laughs> yeah yeah um there is first of all um, this idea and this a lot of this comes from Serenus's gynecology and this is a guy who is uh, writing under Trajan and Hadrian so um, quite late yeah yeah relatively late mm. and and he's a physician that he grew up in Ephesus but he practiced in Alexandria and then he practiced in Rome mm. and he's seen a lot of things he's got a very particular methodology and he's approach to anatomy sure um, he's very critical of the idea of the wandering womb he thinks that's a load of crock which is to do with uh, <laughs> women being hysterical, not having uh, 
enough sex. <laughs> <laughs> we will come back to yeah, that. Yeah, we will come back to that, yeah. <laughs> Don't get hysterical. Um, Keep the wounds in place. <laughs> this idea that, that, um, that the body can be made ill mm. by desire. Sure. And yeah. that the best way to satisfy or cu- to cure that illness is to engage in regular intercourse. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, remaining chaste and can in some circumstances be considered healthful as well. And so the Greeks are very much an advocate for this idea that if you're uh, an athlete, it's much better to abstain prior to the event sure. um, that you want to participate in because as a man releasing all of your seed, sort of a dispersion of your strength. Yes. Um, and I think that's another thing days. to do with like, you know, women. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. And this is something that carries through, I think, even till now, like the idea of the, the vamp woman, you know, who hmm. absorbs men's virility. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> another thing to be scared of when having sex <laughs> Wait, she just absorbed all my virility. Get it back. <laughs> Damn you. Uh, yes. Yeah. Continue. Please continue. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It's going off on another one of my tangents. Uh, and that's just, I think that's the thing, though. I think that what it, that's what it comes down to, to the ancient mind. Mm. Um, and, and I think even really kind of, to you know, even in today's world, you can kind of see a connection. It's really around this whole idea of excess of anything being bad for you, mm. you know. Um, yes, you can practice chastity, um, you know, at certain times, um, you know, whether it's in connection with a religious festival or whether you're taking part, you know, in some sort yeah. of athletic competition. Um, it's probably only going to be a temporary thing for most people because you do want to maintain that balance. And so having sex, you know, having sex on a regular basis will kind of hopefully keep you in that balance. But you don't want to go too far the other way and have too much sex and be too, you know, <laughs> dominated by your desire, you know, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that even with homosexual sex, you know, like you were talking about before with the mm. Greeks, um, I mean, that relationship um, we're talking about, the Greeks don't really... You know, like to go back to our first episode, really, I suppose they don't think in terms that we do in like homosexual and heterosexual. No, not se. at all. I mean, we're we're sort of applying modern terminology. Yeah, exactly. That... Um, but there certainly was this sort of this homosexual um, and, and quite sort of regulated relationship that would happen in Greece between hmm. an older man and a younger man. You know, about to sort of enter in on public. Life. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's a it's a tutelage in becoming yeah it's not just about sex yeah it's it's not just about sex although that is a component of it sure um and it's by and large um sexuality which in depictions of it um is one way it's a power dynamic yes the passive partner tends not to be considered to be aroused yes in in that relationship so that's another interesting factor i'm not sure necessarily how that could lead to health, though. Well, I guess I mean in the sense that even even in these relationships, which more were more, I suppose, connected. Like we were saying before, that you know the Greeks sort of had sex with their wives to have children, mm. and it was very important, obviously, that those children, you know, there was no questions about who their parents were, and so women were quite secluded, uh, and women were seen as having this, you know, as you say, sort of voracious sexuality that mm. also had to be sort of controlled. Um, whereas with their sort of more pleasurable sexual experiences Mm. um even in that sort of sphere there was again this warning don't be too excessive in your (laughs) you know in your relationship in that respect either yeah yeah practice moderation wherever you go yeah Um, even in your pleasures yeah and i mean the thing about the greeks as well is they, they do have this reputation as you know being homosexual i'm using my little flesh rabbits again um but they there were also um you know quite high class 
um, concubines, lower class concubines. And so men obviously did enjoy having sex with women as well. You know, it's not it's not like they were just hanging out for the, the hunky looking guy. No, <laughs> no. Um, we, there is a sense in which a, a lot of the narratives that surround sex in the ancient world are just as problematic as the narratives that surround sex in the modern world. Mm. Um uh, who is really benefiting from these types of narratives? And it seems that by and large, it's citizen men. Yeah, um, big surprise, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> um, and the idea that that you've got like power positions rather than and the idea of the penetrator versus yes. the penetrated, yeah, and that representing a very particular power dynamic, yeah, which basically leaves women in a, a tricky position, yeah, because they can't really possibly be the penetrator <laughs> unlike well, with homosexual I mean, sex it's, it's not like dildos didn't exist but no. it's <laughs> oh yeah i can see a greek man saying sure honey let's use the strap on tonight <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm just saying i'm yeah. just saying they had the it didn't necessarily I mean you. that they yeah. weren't involved in that sort of activity yeah but there is the way it's constructed sort of ties your biology really yes. strongly to the roles that you're considered to play. Absolutely, yeah. And and you're locked into those to a Whereas men, extent. it's a little bit more... Op- they're a little bit more options, I suppose. They do have slightly more options. Yeah, and I mean, and, and by practising being, you know, the active partner, you are taking the masculine role and, you know, you are taking that, you know, sort of correct position as opposed mm. to being the one being penetrated, which does degrade you, you know... <laughs> Somewhat, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, girls. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Serenus has some quite interesting things to say about the body in general. Sure. Um, that intercourse uh, around the female genitals, for instance, relaxes the whole body, mm. perhaps in certain circumstances, <laughs> and also, therefore, relaxes the uterus. And this means that menstruation can continue in a regular cycle. So there, are, there is a sense in which they advocate uh, moderation in sex leading mm. to consistency in a woman's menstrual cycle. Which is always a good thing. Which is interesting. Mm. Um, and that women can alleviate many of the problems associated with their menstrual cycle either being irregular or being difficult and painful by engaging in regular sex. Cure-all, hey? <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought? Have you tried intercourse as a solution? <laughs> Actually, I mean, not that this is, again, I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place today. But isn't there also some idea um, in sort of ancient medicinal thought that it is actually good for women to enjoy sex if they're going to conceive? Like, didn't some people have that sort of idea? Some do and some don't. Yeah. Um, I was looking at this earlier. Let yes. me... Let me flip Sorry, I've, I've thrown you. I've thrown you a while. <laughs> no, no, no. But this was something I was looking at just a little while ago. And so I have something on that here. Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously men too. But certainly, but... <laughs> but certainly it seems to be the case that uh, from a Greek perspective, it wasn't necessarily important. They understood that you could conceive without, it, with, yeah. without pleasure for the woman coming into it. Sure. Um, Aristotle does indicate that he's aware of what the clitoris is. Mm. Um, and and he sees it as uh, an equivalent of some kind to the penis, but but distances its uh, role from anything to do with conception. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess it's uh, I guess it's kind of the idea that um, 
particularly in the ancient world when you know medicinal practice is somewhat limited if if you're experiencing pleasure that would have to be you know logically it's a good thing and therefore you know mm. so good for you um good for maintaining your health <laughs> you know like uh, i actually I, I was reading a book which put it rather well in that um if you're if you're thirsty you therefore have a desire for water mm. and drinking that water obviously would bring you pleasure and yeah. therefore it's natural and good and you know that sort of thing it's kind of a similar sort of process with sex like you know because it's just yeah it's, it's like yeah. any bodily function yeah and there is this idea as well that although um getting back to um clitoral pleasure um <laughs> <Please> although <do. laughs> segue segue um i'm not focused on it at all um that uh although it's Aristotle sees it as not necessary yeah. uh, for contraception to take place. Um, he does see it as being helpful if it's involved, actually. Mm. Not necessary, but it could be helpful. Um, because that feeling of pleasure will lead to the production of certain fluid and it also ensures that her womb is open. Easier passage for the semen. Uh, this is in contradiction to um, the Hippocratic school of thinking, which is just like, it's just not really necessary. Just, yeah. <laughs> you need um, to do what you need to do. Aristotle, get out of it. <laughs> Aristotle, a man for the ladies. Woo! <laughs> you know, I never actually would pick <laughs> in that light, but uh, thank you for opening, opening my mind. Um, I suppose the other thing that I noticed is being different, because um, mm. uh, I, I, I was obviously sort of comparing, you know, Greco-Roman thought to Christian thought. Because it's really mm. with the Christians that we start to get this um, really, I suppose, uh, more interesting um, and more. Uh, I don't know what the word is, more intense, I suppose, ideas about chastity and, and, ah, and that being yes. with you. In that the Greeks and the Romans didn't necessarily con- um, dis- have a disconnect between like a body and a soul. Mm. You know? um, whereas Christianity, I suppose, um, more, more and more sees the soul as being, you know, something, something separate. Something distinct from the body. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Greeks were always about... The, because we have these ideas of balance coming from the Greek world. Yes. We also have this idea that, like, what you do with your body also affects your mind. Yes. And and that sort of stands in, in to an extent for the soul. Yeah. Um, so there, there has to be a balance between physicality and intellectuality for a full yeah. life in a Greco-Roman yeah. sense. And I suppose as well... Um, as I say, they don't because you know. As I say, because pleasure is something that you get from satisfying a need. They don't necessarily look at it as like you know, to, to use a word that's heavily <laughs> connected with Christianity, sinful. You know, it's not necessarily mm. bad for you. Um, and, and and I suppose when what you were talking about there about keeping your mind in check as well is the idea of the, you know the hysterical woman, like yeah, you know, yeah. a woman being driven somewhat insane. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this idea of uh, the wandering womb, I think, is really quite fascinating. So bizarre. Uh, I'm sorry. It just is. It's still... It might have something to do with the male inability to comprehend the female anatomy. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. Ooh. Yeah, well, the man doesn't have one. So what do you do with this object? Oh, it could go anywhere. Um, the idea that it somehow could become detached from its original location. Um, I'm sorry. Just under, make me laugh. under certain circumstances. Um, if if you're not menstruating, if you're if you're tired, if you've engaged in prolonged abstinence, if you're malnourished, all of these things uh, are thought to 
uh, be precursors to the womb detaching from its particular location. It's starting to float around the body. Um, <laughs> making you feel quite uneasy. Making things <laughs> even worse. Um, this seems to be a general catch-all for, like, I don't understand women. There must be something physically wrong with her. <laughs> she had um, a go at me for not loading up the dishwasher. <laughs> must be a wandering womb. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what's wrong with her. Perhaps she's broken inside. Um, yeah. So this is the sort of rhetoric that could lead you into all sorts of problems. Um, interestingly, uh, not all Greek physicians believed in it. Serena sure. certainly didn't. He rejected it out of hand. He was like, I've looked at the body. I've done some anatomical studies. It's pretty clearly stuck. Insane. In, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty in situ where it is. Yeah, it's not like your testicles go for a wonder. Yeah. <laughs> or do, do they? they? <laughs> Maybe after being kneed in the crutch. I hate it being when... Such a bastard. <laughs> I hate it when I lose my balls. And yeah. just, and just, where did I put them? Yeah. Um, and so... Serenus, for instance, rejects it outright. And, but it's interesting that this idea of the wandering room not only sort of surfaces in the ancient Greek world and is then contested in the Greek world, but then the contest over that idea seems to have been lost. And as you move into the medieval period and the Christian period and the Renaissance, yep. the idea of this wandering room and the hysteria, the madness that's associated uh, with this womb, uh, comes into play more and more and so it becomes sort of stuck in western cultural tradition even though it's the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) and the greeks themselves (laughs) argued about it yeah uh so yeah the fact that it was contestable yeah i get it was contestable i get what you mean Mm. (laughs) okay so that brings us i suppose a little bit to um when the christians come along (laughs) <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a totally new era, man. Get with the, get with the times. Um, so Christianity obviously um, has quite a strong connection to uh, Judaism and Jewish thought. Uh, um, smile and nod. Yes. Smile and, nod. <laughs> um, and in Jewish texts, there, or sorry, in Hebrew, he- Hebraic texts, um, there were lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of rules for keeping yourself pure. Mm-hmm. Okay, this idea of how you could um, please your vengeful God <laughs> in ten ways or less. No, there's, there's, a, lot more there's a lot more than that. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure everyone's pretty familiar um, with the idea that you know Jewish people can't eat certain foods. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain rules about certain days, like what you can do, can't do. Can you work? Can you not? Who knows? Um, and obviously. Sex is obviously a big part of this as well. You know, how do you... Um... Why would you want a taboo all over that? <sighs> because, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. I think it has to do, like, I mean, I was reading this really interesting book um, called Sex and Punishment, which um, basically was talking about how by setting out these very strict regulations mm. about sex um, and the idea of purity in sex, um, they were, yeah, that particular civilization, they were distinguishing themselves from all the people around them who mm. had very different sexual practices. Um, so it was a way of sort of setting themselves apart from the sort of barbaric practices of the people who yeah. were living around them, who were, pra- you know, who said that things like bestiality were okay. It just depends on, you know, the class you come from and you know, that sort of thing. Because that, that's another factor, I suppose, that Greek, the Greeks and Romans take into account all the time when it comes to sex is class. You yes. Know, um, yes. So, so, you know, it's, it's power, it's class, it's, you know, it's those sorts of things. Keeping the society intact by keeping the individuals in their proper places you know um but christianity um and but because christianity comes in and has these links to judaism those sexual regulations sort of hang around as ideas you know whereas they might have not 
you know, made such an impact on Western civilization were it not for the proliferation of Christianity. Yes, yes. And so, and how how are the Christians differentiating themselves in particular from the Greek and Roman thought? Well, I think, I mean, what particularly struck me, and I mean, of course, Christianity is somewhat influenced by, you know, philosophies that, you know, Greco-Romans, you know, took up as well, like the mm. whole idea of, you know, sto- the Stoics, you know, that, yeah. um, that, and, you know, the Stoics... <laughs> as the name might suggest. <laughs> they, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> they did have this idea, I suppose, that, um, you know, indulging yourself, uh, you know, bodily sensations might not be the best thing for you, that, you know, um, that, you know, you, you just sort of have to suffer through things. Indulging <laughs> yourself in pleasure is not perhaps very good for you as a person. Um, you can kind These of guys see... sound boring. I know. Come on. <laughs> um, and so Stoics. you can see how that kind of would appeal to Christian thought, you know, as, yeah. it, as it's evolving. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah, it, it is a process. Um, it doesn't all just come in one lot. Um, but I guess the essence of this comes down to this idea that by maintaining some sort of body purity yes you're essentially maintaining a pure relationship with your god as well yes and that that in itself is very much although like they're trying to position themselves differently Mm. in fact that's precisely what greek and romans already were doing themselves yeah it's just in a much more sort of um dispersed way because the nature of cult is so much more prolific and differentiated in the greek and roman world you sort of have moments or patterns of purity that take place in the lead up to certain festivals yeah. or in the engagement like you shouldn't with... have sex so many days before a festival yeah or yeah and yeah. and only with particular gods not yeah. every god yeah. was and some gods were all about the sex and, and some gods were very much about having that lee time where you waited and preserved something and increased the sacral potential of the yeah. rite that you were about to engage in yes. by abstaining from yeah. sex. And of course there the were... The Christians sort of take that I on. Mean, you would know of all people that there certainly were also cults that were associated with, you know, virginity, like the Vestals. Well, know? they're highly rare. Yeah. And I, know, I think what's interesting about that is that that idea sort of morphs into Christianity in a much stronger way than it ever did yeah. with the Romans. And, it is, and the thing, I suppose the thing about the Vestals that is kind of, you know, different to the way Christians might approach things is that it was kind of to do with keeping, you know, keeping the city safe. You know, mm. the, the, as, you, as you said, I think, in our previous episode on Vestals, like the idea that, you know, if their bodies are impenetrable, then so is Rome. Yes. You know, it's not just about, you know, being safe because then Vesta will be pleased. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Vesta will be pleased. Yeah. Um, but, but it's not just but about that. No, yeah. there's more at stake. Yeah. Um, and... For the Christians, it becomes much more of a of a widespread movement. I mean, you get the whole sort of aesthetic monks. Oh, totally, um, yeah. And self-mutilation, you know. Yeah, and the wandering around in the desert and denying yourself not just sexual pleasure, but any pleasure at all. Exactly, and it's the idea that by somehow... Um, it, it, I suppose this is this is where I mean like the real big difference comes in with this whole idea of you know body and soul. Mm. It's almost like for some Christians you're at war with your <laughs> body. You know you're trying to beat your body into submission somehow by denying it earthly yes. you know, earthly needs even not just earthly pleasures like it's... hunger. Thirst, yeah, yeah. Sex. It takes it to quite an extreme, and I guess that in a way is 
an attractive part of Christianity from some perspective. Mm. If, you, if you're looking for something to give you great meaning, there's obviously something to hold on to in that level of extremism. Yeah. It's like it's a whole system of purity. Um, well, and I suppose, I mean, this is But it does, it does sort of position the body as secondary yeah. to, to the soul. To the whole exercise of yeah. self, which is really quite fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like, and this is the thing about Christianity, more so than most, I think, there's so much debate about, you know, as, as you know, even these days, but as Christianity is developing and taking more of a powerful hold in the world, there's a lot of debate, you know, to extremely bitter levels, you know, in the Christian community about what is acceptable and what mm. does this, you know, you know, what does this biblical scripture mean? And, you know, <laughs> what are we going to decide is the rule? Mm. You know, all of a sudden things that were considered legitimate are heretical. And, you know, it's, mm. it, it's, it's constant tossing and turning a little bit because there are people, you know, particularly sort of earlier on, you know, mm. when Christianity is kind of still an underground movement in the Roman world. Um, people like St. Paul, who, yes, he was, you know, chaste and, and virginal himself, but he wasn't necessarily saying that that was the way for everyone. Like, he recognized that there is a strong sexual desire and that the idea is to be chaste, which doesn't necessarily mean to be virginal. It just means perhaps to regulate your sexual desire within something like a marriage, mm. you know, where it's acceptable and it's not like a sinful fornication. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, I think that brings us full circle on this topic and yeah. perhaps a nice wrap-up as well in, sure. the, in that sense that... Um, what you're ideally striking for in in a modern system as well as in the ancient world is this idea of balance. Yes. And and ultimately that level of extremism where, you say, you go out into the desert and you deny yourself everything except the very bare essentials yes. um, is not perhaps the ideal way to find no. uh, a, a sense of greater se- self. I don't know. I, I guess it depends on the individual. But this idea that, that sex is tied up into that and it becomes an expression of self in various ways and it obviously becomes fetishized in various ways. Yes. I find incredibly curious. And I think oh, we strayed away from health a little bit. But I don't mind. I like yeah. this topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's so tricky because it's, mm. you know... Like, yeah. It is just so difficult to talk about this topic because it can take you in a million different directions. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with what you mean. It, a lot of stories, you know, were taken up later on as you know as proof, and, and some people didn't agree with that, like mm. the idea that you know, okay, man is made in God's image, you know, and sex wasn't sinful for Adam and Eve until they fell, and then it became, mm. you know, then they had to procreate. And, you know, then women had to give birth in pain as punishment, and then <laughs> men had erections, which went under their control. Like, it's you know, <laughs> you know, it's like I'm just imagining. Yeah, that. exactly. Sorry. For some, well, I mean, for some people, it's like, well, God made us in His image, and originally we didn't have those sorts of desires, mm. therefore we shouldn't have them now. Whereas for other people, I think it was a bit of a different spin on things, in that it was, you know, it became sinful because of, I guess, the way Adam and Eve, <laughs> you know, took a wrong turn. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, so you know, that's it's kind of a, it's a tricky thing, you know, mm. and and I suppose the Christian God, as opposed to Greco-Roman gods, we don't really hear about him having sex. <laughs> you know, no, maybe, I know. You know, impregnating a woman while she's you know not aware of it. Sure, wow, <laughs> surprise! Yeah, and that idea with immaculate conception as well. It kind of makes. It kind of makes well, it, sex sinful. Well, it kind of puts sex yeah. outside of acceptable practice. Exactly, yeah. And and then how do you Yeah, reconcile? whereas Greco-Roman gods, well, generally speaking, uh-huh. they're all about the sex. There are some that are virginal, mm-hmm. but most of them aren't. Most of them are engaged in sexual practices yeah. of various And kinds. have children, you know, like, you know, normally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not immaculately. <laughs> 
relatively normally. I mean, of course, there were the occasions where people were sprung out of people's heads and thighs, but, you know, relatively normally. Yeah, yeah and there was bestiality as well, if I remember rightly. Well, that's no, right. let's not talk about that. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> okay, another time, another time. Yeah, we could do a whole episode yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, this is your time to vote for a bestiality conversation. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, well, okay, it's been a pleasure talking to you in rather <laughs> tangential ways. <laughs> yeah, through Greek, Roman, and some Christian thoughts. Yes, indeed. <laughs> what if we return to the topic again? <laughs>